I'm going to ask that we stand. We're going to read a passage of scripture. It's Mark chapter 15, and I know we've read a lot of scripture and you've heard a lot of words, but I want to, so we're just going to stand and read this last one. It's not a tremendously lengthy piece of scripture, but it's the one we cover for this week. Mark chapter 15, verse 1, if you're following along in your, in your Bibles. And it says, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released for, the, for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. God, we come before you and we just keep running across these pictures and it's it's these are the pictures that Matthew Mark Luke and John each one of them is focused on it's a, almost as if the the whole gospel uh, of each of these different writers they they they're kind of oriented to get to this final moment and they draw out different details but they're very very focused on those details each one of them Matthew Mark Luke and John each one of them and what they're doing is communicating to us the centrality of our faith the fact that we come through this moment that we like, we, like any number of things that get funneled through kind of a, a tight little place that makes us uncomfortable, we come through the cross or we don't come at all. And Jesus offers for us these, these images of what it means to be broken. And the cross is the first and the foremost in all of our minds, and yet the scourging, the whipping, the, the crown of thorns, the mockery, what choice do we have but to see our God made to look ridiculous this morning. Help our hearts to connect with that story. Help us to identify with it so profoundly that it becomes not just your story, but it becomes ours as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a really hard time understanding all that's on the table as far as what's at stake in this storyline. You know, when Jesus is acting and living out what is in this passage of Scripture. There are 39 books of the Bible that have been written. And starting with the very first of them, they predict his coming. 
Genesis 3 has this kind of cryptic little piece of information that says that right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve took a bite of the first, you know, nasty fruit and sin entered the world and all of this brokenness began, in the middle of that it says that the redemption will come. There is this boy who will crush, a son of Eve that will crush the head of the serpent, the enemy, Satan. And yet that Satan will bite and bruise his heel crush and bruise, back and forth, those words kind of flow. And the people of the ancient world called it the Proto-Evangelium, Latin for the first evangelistic message, if you will. It's like there's just the seeds of the gospel that we all believe in that are kind of hidden in that little passage in Genesis chapter 3. Well, that doesn't end the story. It just barely begins it. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy has this great prophecy in Deuteronomy 16 through 18. Moses himself, the greatest prophet in in Israel's history, says, someday there will be a prophet that comes and he will stand in my place. There will be another prophet. David, 2 Samuel 7, is told that there will be a king and that king uh, will, that kingly line will never end. And he goes on to predict the coming of some king that's just kind of curious. He calls him a lord. The greatest king in Israel's history looks at some other human being that's apparently in his imagination and he looks at him and he calls him some word that shows respect. Why does the greatest leader in Israel's history show respect to anybody? And Jesus quotes that passage and says, that's true of me. It goes on and on and on. Melchizedek in the New Testament tells, or Hebrews in the New Testament tells the story of Melchizedek, a priest all the way back in Genesis time. And it says that Jesus is a priest in the order of this crazy, weird priest that comes from a city called Salem and has dual roles, one a king, one a priest. There's all of these different pieces of information that just start to snowball as the Old Testament builds. And we get to the place where Isaiah in the the 8th century says these lines. He says, a virgin will be with child. You'll remember this from Advent. This is what we talk about during the Christmas season. Uh, A virgin will be with child and the government will, will be on his shoulders. He will be called the everlasting father. The, the counselor, mighty counselor, prince of peace, Emmanuel, God with us. The prince of peace, just that word alone. We, we think of those words during Christmas, and yet they are the words that build to this moment as Jesus is standing in front of Pilate and the Sanhedrin, 71 leaders strong, are sitting there building to a moment when they can crucify Jesus, and the crowd is being won over by subsur- subversive actions of the priests. They're being brought into the conspiracy, and people are starting to shout, crucify him. And in the middle of this, what is hanging in the balance, what is starting to look ridiculous, is not just Jesus. He does. Some guy who doesn't really stand out in a crowd, he doesn't look that brilliant, not so charismatic, yet his miracles cause many to follow him. But in this moment, he looks broken and beaten and battered. He's not a Jesus who would get people to worship at his feet at this moment. The only worshiping done is actually a mockery, an an homage paying that's just absolutely the opposite of respect. Interesting moment. Jesus has fallen a long, long way. And it's not just Jesus that has fallen. It is 39 Old Testament books, each one of whom has in some way predicted this coming. The plan of God has built. You would picture this man, the anointed one, the Messiah, as Jesus has proclaimed himself just the night before in Annas and Caiaphas' house, as he proclaimed himself the Messiah, what he aligned himself with was this picture of gigantic armies with furled uh, banners that that were kind of hidden. And then as they get close to the city gates, the people realize it is the Son of God it is the Messiah, it is the leader that God was always going to send. And all of a sudden they realize this massive army actually has as as its leader the Messiah. That was what people expected. And instead, they're looking at somebody who's bleeding from thorn-pierced 
skull and he's bleeding from these raggedy wounds that are going down his back and he's covered in purple and it's not the purple of a king, it's the purple of a, of a cast off robe that the Roman soldiers gave to him to make fun of him. And it's at this moment that we have to enter the possibility. And I want you to know this is my belief. And I know many Christians who don't agree with me. And if you don't, leave afterwards and don't talk to me, okay? But I believe that we far overestimate Jesus' godness. I don't mean to say that he actually is not God. He's 100% God. He never loses any bit of that godness. But what I believe is that he gives up the expressions of those attributes when he comes to earth. He doesn't know everything. The Bible tells us that he grows in wisdom and in truth and favor with God and man. It tells us that he develops like any child. He psychologically develops. He physically develops. He emotionally develops. He is a son of a real human woman. And so he has actual humanity. And he faces this moment the way you and I would face it, only perfectly. Sometimes we have this picture of Jesus that says that he's just so much on an, in an ivory tower, so much on a massive throne that he can never come down and emulate what it's like to live real life. But I think Jesus actually lives more like you and I than we want to admit. He's actually somebody who faced fear and got sick. He's actually somebody who lived a life that, that was filled with all of the same emotions and difficulties that you and I face. I believe he faced anxiety and doubt. All of those things. I don't believe that in his present form in this story that he knew everything, although I believe God does know everything. I don't believe Jesus chose to live that out while he was on earth. And when I look at the story of Jesus and I see that humanity, I realize that it explains a great deal about his life. He's constantly interacting with the Holy Spirit. Why do you think he can do these miracles? Because he's interacting with God perfectly unlike us. He's listening to the Father about the people who surround him and he's seeing insight into their lives because he has a direct communication line. That's not because he's God. It's because he's perfect. It's because he's living the way Adam was originally intended to and the way you and I were intended to and the great wound in our souls is that Jesus can live this out and we cannot. And we feel ourselves called to the same relationship and yet we struggle to realize what that actually means in the real world of today. This is 2014, and nobody looks like what Jesus looked like in the story. And so what's hanging in the balance in this moment is all of those 39 prophetic books of the Old Testament who have predicted Jesus coming, and they have predicted God winning, and they have predicted a gigantic battle, and they have predicted a victory, and they have predicted a leader who is above every other leader, and yet this one seems to be below He is being broken. He is being brutalized. He is being damaged. And if I were Jesus, I'll tell you what I'd be afraid of, because I'm always afraid of this. I'd be afraid of the reputation I am losing. God has spoken. He has spoken in Genesis. He has spoken in Deuteronomy. He has spoken in Samuel. He has spoken in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations. He has spoken again, again, and again. He has predicted that Jesus would be born just in Micah. He predicts he would be born in Bethlehem. Herod the Great takes on that little bit of truth and knows who to kill when he's looking for little babies when he wants to wipe out the king of the Jews. He doesn't succeed, but he tries. And why is that? Because he knows this prophetic witness of all of these Old Testament passages. And yet what's sitting on the line in this moment is God's reputation because God had predicted all of this great stuff. Now just think for a second that what Jesus is doing is acting in exactly the counterintuitive way for somebody who's going to be victorious. He looks like a loser and yet... He's saying somehow he's going to win. 
In this storyline, there are various characters. There's a crowd of people, and they're shouting, crucify him. And there are the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, and they are working in the midst of this crowd, and they are developing this conspiracy from the ground up. They are breeding, these are breathing these, these seeds of doubt about this man's character, and the people are shouting, crucify him, as a response to these leaders who are saying, we should get rid of this guy as quickly as possible. He's going to do devastating things to our, to our nation. And then there's Pilate. Pilate's the last person to agree with this whole conspiracy, but he eventually does. And there's Judas who's been entered into in the very words of the New Testament by Satan. And there's Satan himself sitting on the sidelines. And what Satan is thinking as this story progresses is, somehow I have gotten one over on God. I am winning against the Son of God. And then there is God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what are they thinking? And you need to get this in your mind. This is an important piece to the story that we're reading. Jesus And Satan agree in this moment. This is one of the rare moments, maybe the only rare moment, I don't know, when Satan and God actually agree on what needs to take place. The crowd is shouting, crucify him. Caiaphas and Annas are saying, crucify him. Pilate is eventually going to say, crucify him. Release Barabbas, they say. And Satan is saying, by all means, let's get rid of this God as quickly as possible. And Jesus is saying, yes, I agree. And God from on high holding back 10,000 upon 10,000 angels is saying, I agree as well. Crucify him. When you think about it, the last person to agree with this whole conspiracy of all the players in its midst, the last person to agree is Pilate. He keeps wanting to hold out. He knows this man is not guilty. And yet Jesus, for very different reasons than everyone else, is saying, yes, it is time. This is the right road. This is an interesting storyline. Wouldn't you agree? And yet I suspect that Jesus in his humanity faces moments of doubt just like you and I do. I don't think he knew everything. And so I think he faced fear. And I suspect that fear wasn't just of the cross or of the beating or of the physical or spiritual pain. I think that fear is that what if he is wrong? What if he thought he heard God and yet he didn't completely understand What if he misses the plan of God by just so much as a hair's breadth and he goes off to the left or to the right and he suddenly finds himself crucified, killed, murdered, and it actually doesn't work. The resurrection doesn't actually occur. The plan of God hasn't led him to this moment. And he's actually for the first moment after that great temptation story where he stands up against those three ending temptations. In this moment, what if he is actually capitulating with the devil in a way that nobody would ever expect and he's actually submitting to the wrong person? What if? What if? How does he know he's right? And you might have thought all your life that this Jesus just always knew, but I want you to know, I don't think he did. I think the amount of things Jesus didn't know far outweigh the things that he did. And yet in this moment, he shows utter confidence that he's making the right choice. And if we don't enter the possibility of doubt into his life, the possibility of fear, you won't understand what, how great and how amazing, and I won't understand how great and amazing is this tremendous confidence and humility that he seems to just kind of breathe out in the midst of all of his accusers. There's an opposite emotion for everything in this world. There's an opposite attitude for everything in this world. The opposite of self-control and the fruits of the Spirit is escape. We just love to walk away. The The opposite of patience is hurry. The opposite of peace, maybe it's, it's just kind of an anxious, doubting heart. And the opposite of fear, on the other end, what is that? 
If Jesus faced fear in this moment and he was thinking the plan of God, 39 books strong, all of these different prophets, major and minor, kings like David who have predicted this coming, Moses himself speaking the truth, saying this will be the one who will crush Satan underneath his foot. In the middle of all of that, what if, what if Jesus is doubting and what if the effect of that is he stands up against that doubt and he knows the secret to how to conquer it when we don't? There's a little tiny line in the Bible, and it is so worthwhile, that tells us that there is something within the Spirit of God that stands up against our fear. Let me tell you what it is. It it, it goes to the, the very end of the New Testament, the opposite of fear. It says it's just this little word. It's not faith. It's not understanding. It's not wisdom. It's not that Jesus knew so much. It's actually in this moment that he loved so much. In 1 John 4.18, you find these words, and they are so important. They are critical to your life and to mine. They say this, perfect love casts out fear. How did Jesus walk in this moment and not fear? How did he not succumb? Let me tell you what I would have done. Even if I would have known the plan of God, okay, yes, I understand that I am to die. Okay, that's fine. But let me tell you how you guys are entering into the plan of God unexpectedly. You guys, I'm going to tell you ahead of time so that when you come out the other end, I can tell you I told you so because I'm that sort of person who wants to protect my pride and make myself look good. So if I'm going to look this bad, by all means, I'm going to show you how good and wise I truly am because I understand the big picture and you're missing the forest for the trees. That's what I would have said if I were Jesus. I would have defended myself, and it might not have been at the expense of the crucifixion and the actual plan of God, but I promise you it would have been at the expense of being loving because I would have protected myself in the storyline I see going on. I would have told these people, listen, okay, fine, crucify me, but watch me. I'm going to rise from the dead, and I'm going to conquer you. And what's going to happen in this story is going to reverse what you think. It's going to turn it all around. I would have said that, but Jesus sits here quietly silently, not answering the people mocking and accusing. I want to just read for you just a little bit from 1 John because I want to, I want to go back and kind of investigate what Jesus does in the way of, in the way of walking out what it means to be a, a child of God. He's the Son of God and he's walking this out. He lives out this scripture perfectly. It says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. What Jesus is facing in this moment is the dark night of the soul. It is judgment. He doesn't deserve it, but it is judgment. And how does he know he's living out the right way? It is because he is in connection with the Father God On the Thursday night of the crucifixion week, where was Jesus? He's in this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he leaves nine of the disciples behind and he takes three with them. And then those three fall asleep and then he goes one step further and he sits there and he he cries out, he sweats out tears of blood. We're not sure exactly how that all works, but he sits there in agony before the Father God and he listens and he, he, he comes again and he says, listen, if there's another way for me to go about this, if there's another way for redemption to be accomplished, if somehow I can say, let this cup be passed from my lips, by all means, God. And God says, no, let me explain this. I love you. In fact, I don't love anything more than I love Jesus the Christ. There is no person on this planet I love more than Jesus. And yet it is the perfect love of God that sends this Jesus to the cross. And in that garden, in the dark of the night, as the disciples are falling asleep, Jesus and God come to agreement. 
that on the morrow, the next day, Jesus is going to capitulate. He's going to agree with the enemy. He's going to fall prey to this ambush, or at least it's going to seem so. And he is going to walk towards the, re- to, towards the crucifixion with this deep sense of purpose, knowing that God had called him to this. And he faces the fear of this moment, not by being so knowing and being so wise and being so godlike. He faces it by being absolutely filled with love. And he spends the night before this great trial that he's in the midst of getting acclimated again to the Father's love and having it pour back into his life and saying, okay, because of this fear that I'm about to face, I need to face the greatest love in the universe and have my soul just marinated in it again. Let my soul be transformed by this moment, says Jesus. And he is sitting there in the presence of God. And I believe he was altered. And I believe you need to be. And I believe I need to be. Why do we go through Lent? Because we need a Garden of Gethsemane moment. Because there are fears that each one of us face. And I don't know what it is for you, but each one of us is facing some anxiety, some doubt, some deep moment that breaks us in ways that we can't even explain or understand. And yet what's going on in our lives is that we are living out the passion of the Christ in lesser and smaller ways. He has called us to this. Every Christian I know comes to some moment where they think they've understood the walk with God and yet then they fall apart because some teenage kid goes the wrong direction or some spouse decides on this, that, or the other thing that betrays the marriage or some job change results in unemployment. Whatever it is, that's the moment that God sometimes chooses to work the most positively in our lives and yet it feels like a moment of doubt and fear. Again and again and again this happens. And Jesus faces that moment by going away with the Father and changing his heart to be back in the presence of God and to realize all of this love that's churning out. And then he walks in the next day and it says this, listen, because as he is, because as he is so also are we in this world, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because God first loved us. Jesus walked into that crowd of people and he saw something other than a crowd. He loved them. We see a crowd that says crucify him and he saw individual people whose hearts mattered. And because he had the love of the Father in him, he could have the love that would change the game and alter the moment. He didn't need to speak in pride. He didn't need to defend what he was doing. He needed to just walk into agreement with who God was and what God was calling him to do. And in the middle of that, if Satan was going to come along and be a willing accomplice, so be it. If Judas was somehow going to betray him and think that he had done the worst thing on earth, well, it's not as though Jesus was submitted to something other than the Father. And that love permeates this whole scene in a way that is transformational and alters the storyline. And if you miss that, you miss the story. Walt Wangren writes in this week's reading about this point. It's just phenomenal what he says. Who can believe the paradox of our report? The crow would destroy, the, the crown would destroy Jesus by crucifying him. I'm sorry, the crowd would destroy Jesus by crucifying him. But Jesus would destroy the crowd by naming its persons one by one, by calling them out of brute slavery of sin, by loving them and renewing one by one their right spirit and their personhood. Let me read that again. The crowd would destroy Jesus by crucifying him, but Jesus would destroy the crowd by naming its persons one by one, by calling them out of brute slavery of sin, by loving them and renewing one by one their right spirit and their personhood. Where there is a divine relationship with each individual soul, there can be no crowd. 
There is only holy communion. Jesus walks into that crowd, and it's just like John 8 when this woman is caught in the midst of adultery, and she's brought in front of Jesus, and there's a crowd of men, and they're accusing her, right? But the storyline has changed. Now he's the accused. He's where the woman used to be. And in that moment, he looks at these men, and he says, the one who has not sinned, why don't you chuck the first stone? And yet nobody kneels to even pick one up. They all just kind of evaporate that crowd because Jesus separates them from their crowdness. He says, you're not a multitude. You're a, you're, you're a group of individual people. And each one of you has brokennesses in your own soul. And maybe you sinned with this woman or maybe you just thought about it, but you have broken sin inside of you. How dare you cast that stone? And they walk away. Well, in this crowd, Jesus acts differently, but he sees their hearts and he says, these are future followers of God. In 1 Corinthians 13, 7, it says this line about love that I find perplexing and difficult. It says that love bears all things, it believes all things, it endures all things, it hopes all things. Our love gives up when we're betrayed. Our love stops believing and starts doubting in the middle of the storyline. His love continues to believe in the midst of difficulty and accusation. In the middle of this, this crowd, each individual person is saying, crucify him. And what Jesus says is, by tomorrow, they might be saints. After the resurrection, this crowd will be altered, each individual separate from the other, and the redemption of Christ might come upon them, and the Holy Spirit might empower these very same people to do great works and miracles. Jesus loves in this moment and his fear dissipates and he doesn't doubt and he doesn't walk contrary to the plan of God because he looks at these individual people for who they are because he has the love of God within him. It's a love that you and I are both intended to have. Jesus loves and we are changed by that love and we are able to love because he first loved us. When I was in college, I read a line, and of all the quotes I've read in college, I've forgotten most of them. This one has stuck with me through the ages of my life, just different eras. It always kind of rings true. C.S. Lewis writing in the introduction to a book that he just loves. He changed his life. The book's entitled Fantastus. But he writes this line. He says before this, he says, it's really doubtful whether the maxim is true that to know all is to forgive all. He says, to know all might be to actually not forgive. Because when you look inside of somebody's life, if you know too much, you will find darkness, depravity, sin, and it will cause you to not forgive, not to love. So to know is not to forgive. But let me tell you, the opposite, according to Lewis, is this. The unshakable truth is that to forgive is to know. He who loves sees. And Jesus loves when he walks into this crowd. And he forgives ahead of time. And and that very afternoon, he's going to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But in this moment, he forgives them even before they do it. Even before the nail is put put to the hammer, Jesus is forgiving the people who are accusing him. And he's saying, listen, I love and so I forgive. And because I forgive, I know. There's probably a Nicodemus in this crowd who came to Jesus in John chapter 3. There's most likely a Joseph of Arimathea who's going to be the very man to take him off of the cross. Future God followers are in this crowd and they are accusing him in the middle of this. We don't know for sure that St. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, wasn't in this crowd, a Pharisee who becomes one of the greatest missionaries of all time. We don't know that. And Jesus knows that these people are created in the image of God and he sees them for who they are and because he sees them, he loves them and because he loves them, he knows them and because he knows them and because he's in the midst of all of this forgiveness, he's able to 
change the game and not offer the defense that you and I would offer. Perfect love casts out fear. And love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. It just keeps going in the midst of failure and disgrace. Jesus wins by losing. He creates a faith that is so different than every other faith. You know, in the history of all of the faiths in this world, if you go to the Walmart of religions and you look on the shelf, you will find all sorts of different things. But what you will never see the equal of is the two most profound things about our faith. One is that it explains why we're so messed up. I love that. Because when I look at myself, I know I'm messed up. And I don't want a religion that somehow tells me that I'm not. Because I need to know that tomorrow might be better than today. Because what's in here is not always good. And Christ explains that through sin. And then he goes one step further and he says, and this is different than every other religion in the world, I can forgive, I can cleanse, I can set free. I can renew, I can walk apart with you from this failure in your life. We can stay together and all of what's gone on before can be left behind. Perfect love casts out fear. And Jesus walks into the most hostile crowd of his lifetime and he gives up his life and he's willing to lay it all down without one single bit of defense, without one truth-saying line. He could have scathingly altered the game with just a few words of truth and instead he says, perfect love casts out fear. We're still a crowd today. and We're still accusing every time we sin. We still have this little bit of us that kind of nails him to the cross, right? We're still breaking Jesus' heart. We're still damaging him. And he's still looking at us and saying, perfect love casts out fear and I will forgive, says the Lord. We win by losing because Jesus first won by losing. Join me in prayer.